0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome, everybody. And, uh, you know, this is a... It's great to have you guys here because I know that there's something else going on tonight, apparently. Um, <laughs> something significant uh, around here. So, uh, well, I guess Go Warriors. So uh, as, as it says up here, my name is Jeffrey DeVito, and I am a clinical assistant professor here in the Department of Psychiatry. Um, as was commented on earlier, uh, you know, I have obviously an MD, but then my other degree is a Master's in Theological Studies. Um, that was a degree that I obtained before medical school, and it was actually during that time that I developed an interest in addictions. Um, because I started to recognize that uh, that many of the things that people struggle with with addictions dovetailed kind of nicely with what we talked about in terms of and what I was interested in about theology and religious studies and spirituality. Um, issues related to how you find meaning, how you regain hope, those kinds of things were all relevant in the uh, uh, world of addictions treatment as it was in the world of theology, religious studies, and spirituality. Um, little word about what I do here in the hospital. So I'm on what's called the consultation liaison service, which means that basically that if someone comes into the hospital, with a, a medical, for a medical reason, or they present to the emergency room with some other medical uh, reason, but the team that's seeing them has a question about management of some psychiatric uh, illness, they will call me as a consultant to give them advice uh, and to meet with the patient and do evaluations. Um, so I get to see people who are coming into the hospital under a lot of different circumstances, uh, heart attacks, um, you know strokes, whatever it might be that they're coming in medically, not surprisingly, a lot of folks who come into the hospital for medical reasons also have psychiatric illness, but they also may have substance use disorders, and that is my area of expertise so I have no relevant disclosures. I wish I did, but i don't <laughs> uh, we've got some objectives for today, which is always a good thing it's Good to have objectives. It helps organize one's uh, thinking about things. I want to kind of give an overview of what what we mean by addiction slash substance use disorder. And I'll kind of define those, and, and that'll become more relevant moving forward. Uh, I want to give an overview of what we know, what we understand about the mechanism of addictions and substance use disorders. Um, and I want to kind of give a global overview of treatment options. Um, That ranges from the psychotherapies and sort of the more, as we would call them, behavioral interventions for addictive disorders and substance use disorders. And uh, also a nod to some medication-assisted treatment uh, to kind of give a global overview of kind of how we think about addictions and what kind of treatments we might employ in treating someone with addictions. Um, And, uh, you know, I want to kind of give throughout this maybe some... Uh, you know, some indication of, or some uh, nod to some clinical considerations that we may have when approaching a patient that we are presented with with addiction. So again, my background is in addictions, but it's my subspecialty, and I want to kind of give a, a sense of what what I'm thinking about when I'm seeing someone with an addictive disorder. So, what is addiction, or what do we mean when we say addiction and substance use disorders? What we mean, basically, is that uh, the words are synonymous as we think about them now. So substance use disorder is considered the same as addiction. When we're talking about this, we're talking about a chronic, progressive, behavioral disorder whose central feature is compulsive drug use despite, con- despite adverse consequences. So the, f- the, the pathophysiology of addiction uh, is fundamentally rooted in the brain's reward system and alterations uh, that, uh, in these systems caused by chronic drug use. Um, as I mentioned, addiction is synonymous with substance use disorder, and this has evolved. These definitions have evolved, so it's good to kind of explain what we're talking about because you may hear people use older terms to represent this. And you may hear people using terms interchangeably. The one thing that I want to emphasize is that when we're talking about addiction, we're talking about a behavioral disorder. So the the main core feature of this is behavior around the substance. So it's not just the use of the substance, it's how someone's using it and what impacts the use and how they're using it has on their lives. So older terms that we use to describe this. You might have heard the term substance dependence. You may have heard the term substance abuse. These are are older terms that we used to use for 20 or 30 years that got renovated in a way about three or four years ago. The diagnostic manual that we kind of refer to in psychiatry to look at and define the different psychiatric diagnoses that we, we have is what's called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's been through a number of iterations. The newest iteration of this is called the DSM-5. Not surprisingly, there was a DSM-4 before that. In the DSM-4, we talked about this distinction between substance abuse and substance dependence. The main differentiating feature between these two diagnoses was physiologic symptoms of tolerance and withdrawal. So, if you had tolerance and withdrawal, um, tolerance being it takes more of the substance to get the same effect over time. So, you have to take you have to drink more alcohol to get to the same state of intoxication, and substance withdrawal meant that if you stop it, you have physiologic responses. Of withdrawal, so you stop using uh, heroin and you feel sick. You get nauseous. You get diarrhea. All of that. Now, I'm talking a little. I'm spending a little bit of time on this because, again, I think it's always good to establish what the terms are before we move forward. the uh, The renovation that happened from DSM four to DSM five, which I think is really significant, is that they de-emphasized those physiologic pieces. Because what we recognized was that there were many people who developed tolerance or they had withdrawal from a substance that didn't actually have a disorder. In other words, the behaviors around their use was not what we would say was behaviorally causing them problems. perfect example of this is someone with, let's say, cancer who, or bone cancer in particular, who is incredibly painful. They're given opioids, for example, over time to treat their cancer pain. In time, you would expect physiologically that that person would require more opioids to get the same analgesic effect. Did that mean that they had an addiction? No. That was just what we would expect would happen in someone who is taking opioids. So I think it was a major step forward when we, when we moved forward with DSM-5 to define addiction or substance use disorder as something that has as its core feature a behavioral component. So, without giving you the most boring slide in the world that just has a listing of all the criteria for this, I tried to lump it into categories. So, we've got, an, uh, there are essentially 10, 10 diagnostic criteria that we use, and we kind of go through it in a checklist format regarding someone's substance use. And you can see that pharmacologic is the last one if you can see it, it's all the way down on the bottom of the slide here, where you have tolerance and withdrawal. These are no longer uh, necessary or sufficient to have one qualify for a substance use disorder, but they're important to kind of also keep in mind when looking at someone who may have this. So we still have them there, but they're kind of de-emphasized. Eight of the 10, you know, eight of the 10 remaining diagnostic criteria are all behavioral. So Impaired control. Someone is using larger amounts uh, over time you know, than they had anticipated or that they had wanted to. The efforts or desires to cut down are, are you know, they, they are unable to, uh, you know, cut down despite their efforts to, uh, to do so. Time spent using or recovering becomes inordinate relative to what they had wanted. A new diagnostic criteria is this concept of craving, that you crave that next cigarette. That if you have cravings, then you have a diagnostic criteria for, uh, substance use disorder. What we do is now in the new classification of this is we add up, you know, how much social impairment, how many of the social impairment criteria do they have? How many of the impaired control? How many of the risky use of the substance do they have? We add them up if they have Two or three, we consider it mild. If they have four to five, we consider it moderate. And can anyone guess what greater than or equal than equal to six might be? Severe, yes. Um, now, these things were not, uh, these, these uh, stratifications were not drawn up randomly. It's not like someone looked at this and said, oh, well, if you have two of these criteria, then it's sort of mild. It's not too bad. Now, in order to come up with these, they actually correlated the number of these diagnostic criteria that you have with impairments either socially or medically down the road. So mild constitutes a lower risk of having a medical or social consequence of your substance use relative to someone who has four or five or, as you can imagine, six or greater. Um, so anyway, I kind of wanted to, to to put this out there to kind of give people some exposure to the idea that the terms have changed over the last few years. We now talk about addictions as being synonymous with substance use disorder in terms of our classification of things. And um, the old terms of substance abuse and substance dependence have kind of gone the way of the dodo bird. Um, everyone loves to pick on the dodo bird. I I don't exactly know why, but uh, uh, the... The next thing that I always like to joke about in terms of you know presenting things at of a medical nature at at these places you know in in these kind of settings is everyone has to have their epidemiology slide or the the listen to me because this matters slide okay so my next few slides are going to be kind of listen to me because this matters slides Um, it when we talk about substance use disorders we talk about. Uh, something that's actually very prevalent. There's a lot of it. A lot of people suffer from substance use disorders and it has significant impacts. So, In terms of how many people have it, we can say that substance use disorders are one of the three most prevalent types of psychiatric disorders that we see. The lifetime prevalence of alcohol dependence for example is 10%. And for other substances it's approximately 5%. So these numbers are are numbers that are generated by self-report surveys that get sent out by different organizations at different intervals. So this is how we arrive at these numbers. So as you can imagine, if it's self-report... We, the, the idea of exactly what the, the prevalence of these disorders is is probably you know somewhat underestimated um, because many people either don't reply to the surveys or they underestimate it in their responses to the surveys. But surveys through the decades have kind of generally indicated that this is about the lifetime prevalence of these disorders. So when we talk about prevalence, we're talking about the number of cases of a particular disorder Divided by, you know, or, you know, divided into the total number of people in a population at a time. So at any given time in the population, we can anticipate that, you know, perhaps 10% of those folks in that population at that time would qualify for alcohol dependence. Now, again, I told you, now I'm going back on what I said before about terminology. You're seeing dependence up there. The reason you're seeing dependence is because substance use disorder is a new enough diagnosis or the diagnostic criteria are new enough that the organizations that do the, uh, the surveys on this haven't been able to update their surveys for that. So the, the data we have on this is, is a little bit older. Um, there are some significant differences. So more males are diagnosed with substance use disorders, alcohol or other drugs than females are. Um, there have been a lot of studies looking at does that actually mean that males are more susceptible to it than females, and it becomes a very complicated issue. But suffice it to say that more males are diagnosed than females. Um, the one of the interesting things that we see demographically is that in general whites seem to have when we're talking about sort of uh, you know specific differences between. Uh, different sort of racial and ethnic populations we 're talking about essentially that that uh, the prevalence of substance use disorders are actually the the prevalence so again remember we 're talking about the total number of cases in a partic- at a particular time in a population, so those numbers are actually higher in white populations than they are in african american asian non non white hispanics but what 's interesting about this is that in the, even though the prevalence may be lower, let's say, in an African-American population, what we do see is that if, if an African-American develops or meets criteria for one of these disorders, they're disproportionately affected by it relative to a white population. So why this is, this data is, is difficult to kind of tease out and determine sort of exactly why that may be the case, but it, it seems to be a somewhat... You know, reproduced finding amongst many different studies. Um, now, the one big exception or the one big outlier to this are Native American populations. This varies by tribal group, but certain Native American populations have exceedingly high rates of substance use disorders and alcohol use disorders, in particular. Um, that again is another thing that's seen pretty consistently across different studies. We also know that people who have a psychiatric disorder. Um, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, are more likely to develop or have a substance use disorder and vice versa. People who develop a substance use disorder are more likely to then develop something like depression, anxiety, um, or some other disorder. So the, the interplay between psychiatric diagnosis, aside from the substance use disorder and a substance use disorder, is, is intertwined. So again, why do we care? Opioid overdoses is something that, you know, opioid overdoses are something that, that have been in the news recently. There's been a lot of information about this out there. You've been hearing perhaps, I mean, on a day to day basis, there are more announcements from the federal government about different initiatives that they're embarking upon. And we do know that, that opioid overdoses alone killed 28,000 people a year in the U.S. So last year, 28,000 people died of over, opioid overdoses alone. So I'm going to come back to why we care in a second, but in the meantime, I wanted to introduce the idea of the mechanism of action when we're talking about substance use disorders. So relative to some of the other psychiatric diagnoses that we have, for example, depression, the pathways in the brain for depression or for schizophrenia are relatively less well understood than those pathways for addictions. In addictions, we actually have a pretty good idea of what systems are involved and what systems are being disrupted when you use substances. So I've got this nifty slice of a brain up here. And back in the 50s, we didn't know where the reward center in the brain was. We, we, you know, I mean, I say in the fifties, we didn't know it before the fifties either. It wasn't until the fifties that we started to understand where the reward center was. And the way that this was determined was that, uh, different researchers were taking, you know, lab rats and they were opening up their heads and they were putting electrodes into different parts of their brain and activating those parts. And the studies that they were looking at were, if we activate this part of the brain, does the rat preferentially want to activate that part of their brain on their own, or would they choose food? so this is perhaps you 've heard of some of these studies where they will um, give two levers or two buttons to the rat to push one would give them food or one would give them a little bit of a jolt to a particular part of their brain. What they determined was that if they put the that electrode into this part of the brain here, this VTA, which is called the ventral tegmental area, if they put it there, the rat would preferentially hit that button to the point that it starved to death. It would not want to eat. It would only want to activate this. Now, the ventral tegmental area, then then we knew kind of, okay, we're onto something here. We know that this is a very, very powerful part of the brain with a lot of reinforcement associated with it. So they were then able to kind of map out, well, what's happening in the ventral tegmental area? What we know is that there's a, the cell bodies of particular neurons that produce a neurotransmitter called dopamine are located in the ventral tegmental area. Those neurons project to other, part, other key parts of the brain. One other part that they project to... I'm very proud of my animations here... <laughs> Look at look at oh, see that? That took me like an hour to figure out how to do that. So, the ventral tegmental neurons project to this other part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. Now, the nucleus accumbens is what's really the reward center of the brain because the nucleus accumbens is integrating projections rewarding projections of dopamine-containing neurons from the ventral tegmental area it's incorporating them not only from the ventral tegmental area, but also from the prefrontal cortex. So this is the loop that we started to figure out was happening. So the the ventral tegmental area is where the dopaminergic neurons cell bodies are located. It projects to the nucleus accumbens, but it also projects to the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is the sort of higher level executive part of your brain. So... And the nucleus accumbens is an older sort of reptilian part of the brain in a way that is associated with reward. So the prefrontal cortex, in, without substances on board, is modulating from the top, we call it top-down versus bottom-up. So top-down prefrontal cortex is telling the nucleus accumbens, okay, it's modulating what's happening in the nucleus accumbens. It's saying, okay, nucleus accumbens, you're getting really excited about this thing that's happening. But we need to kind of compare that against other things. You don't, want to, um, you, know, you, you, you don't want to eat all of that chocolate cake right now because you may get fat. You know? the, it's your prefrontal cortex that's telling your nucleus accumbens, whoa, tone it down a bit. So this interplay between prefrontal cortex, which is executive or top-down control, is projecting into the nucleus accumbens, which is also receiving input from this ventral tegmental area. Now, what's happening with substances of abuse? When we talk about substances of abuse, the final common pathway of all of them is that they induce a certain degree of reward activation. They induce a certain degree of pleasure via dopaminergic neurons that are ending in the nucleus accumbens. Whether it's cocaine, marijuana, alcohol, um, nicotine, one of the final common pathways with all of these substances is that there's a, a release of dopamine into the nucleus accumbens. Now, what's important to realize about this is that all the substances of abuse that we talk about, they don't work because of some novel sort of alien, um, you, know, uh, you know, you, you put this in, a, in your brain and your brain's never seen it before and it just a- lights everything up and activates everything what the, What is happening is that substances of abuse are actually uh, actually delivering or they 're co opting natural circuits that we already have and is just making them fire in a way that 's different than they would fire otherwise, like for example, we have a dopamine system in our brain. The reason we have it is because evolutionarily we need to we need to recognize that there are things that we should be. Doing and things that we should be reinforced to do. Mainly, if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, like eating and sex. We need to have reinforcement so that we would do those things and not die. Or that the species would not you know, cease to exist anymore. Substances of abuse co-op that system. Cocaine, methamphetamine directly affect the, and increase the level of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens. Marijuana. Co opts the what we call the endocannabinoid system again downstream there's a pleasurable effect of that but again it's it, it's co-opting an endogenous uh, uh, an endogenous system so we have receptors in our brain for cannabinoids and when we use smoke marijuana or use marijuana it's taking advantage of those receptor systems that you already have in your brain okay now this is kind of reemphasizing what I was just saying. So drugs of abuse act in the brain reward pathways to either enhance dopamine release or enhance the dopamine effects. So whatever dopamine that is released is more effective in the brain. Drug induced pleasurable states are important motivators of initial use. So the first time you use heroin, for example, it can be incredibly reinforcing, can be incredibly pleasurable. That is an important motivator to use it again. So in other words, any behavior that activates this reward system is treated by the brain as if it should be repeated. So you take some cocaine. It feels good. Your reward center is activated. Your reward center says you should do that again because this felt good. Do it again. That's an important initial reinforcer for substances of, of abuse. But oftentimes when you talk with folks who have a long standing substance use disorder, they'll tell you that later in, their, in, in the course of their illness, they don't get as much of that reinforcement that they got on those initial times. And in many respects, they're actually continuing to use because long-term changes have happened in their brain so that if they stop using, it feels bad. So, for example, folks who use a lot of methamphetamine, if they stop using, feel really, can feel really depressed, no energy. Um, it feels, doesn't feel good. So even though if they use methamphetamine, they may not get the same high that they got the first time, when they use methamphetamine, it's actually eliminating a certain degree of feeling bad that they would get if they stopped otherwise. OK, um, now when we talk about substances of abuse, I'm talking about certain kind of core principles that we think about route of administration matters. So you've probably I mean, people, you know, you drink alcohol. You, some people smoke, uh, you know, opioids. Some people shoot opioids. Um, some people will, uh, you know, uh, intranasal, excuse me, intranasal cocaine, they snort it. Um, the reason that this is important is because generally speaking, the faster a substance gets into the brain and the concentration of that substance gets in the brain, the more reinforcing it is. So the faster you get it in and the higher the amount that you can get in, the more reinforcing it is. The holy grail of drug use, so to speak, is to get it in the brain faster and stronger. Anyone have any idea of what is the quickest way to get anything into the brain? Sublingual. So we have a vote for sublingual. We have a vote for nasal. IV. Intravenous is another vote. Okay, anybody else? Going once, going twice. Lungs. Lungs go directly... Things that are inhaled into the lungs go directly into the brain faster than intravenous, Faster than sublingual, um, faster than intranasal. If you go intranasal, it has to be absorbed through the nasal mucosa. That slows it down a little bit. So, the holy grail for people who develop drugs of abuse is to make a form of the drug that is inhalable. Now, this becomes relevant for, I have. I'm sorry, I have these little tangents that I go on because I think they're fascinating. Um, (laughs) So I'll try to share that fascination with you all. Cocaine. You heard about crack? Okay, so crack cocaine is the smoked, and I'm putting that in quotes and I'll come back to that. Crack cocaine is the smoked version of cocaine. For a long time, you could not smoke cocaine. The reason that you couldn't smoke cocaine, like you couldn't take a coca leaf And smoke it, or you couldn't take, you know, powdered cocaine and smoke it, is because the cocaine's, uh, the the cocaine's decomposing or its its combustible point was very close to its vaporization point. So if you tried to burn coca leaf and inhale it, you were going to get mainly carbon residue because the the active cocaine was going to get destroyed by the flame that you used. So the, 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 the holy grail of cocaine development was to be able to separate out the vaporization point from the burning point. You wanted to put more distance between these two. If you could do that, then you could more effectively deliver a higher amount to the lungs, hence, or thus, more to the brain more quickly. So the intrepid developers of substances of abuse over time developed the technique called free basing. So basically, cocaine exists as a salt. If you change it into a base, it separates out that vaporization point from the burning point, and you're then able to vaporize it with heat without burning it, delivering it to the lungs, to the brain more effectively. So that, that's kind of driving home this point of like how important it is that the route of administration and getting things into the lungs most quickly is what uh, is what's really reinforcing. And obviously, those of you who were around in the nineteen eighties, you know, might remember the, the, the sort of epidemic proportions that crack took on very quickly um, because it was so reinforcing uh, relative to you know snorting it or even shooting it. Um, when I say shooting it, I mean intravenous. So. Uh, you know, an important concept to think about when we're thinking about drugs of abuse. Okay, another kind of interesting thing to think about, another aspect of addiction that has become, you know, more relevant in the past 10 or 15 years kind of stemmed from uh, a, a researcher um, uh, in, you know out of Pennsylvania uh, who looked at the idea of, okay, let's compare addiction to diabetes or asthma um, or hypertension. And let's say addiction as a disorder, what is it does it look at all like diabetes? Does it look at all like hypertension? And what he found was that it actually looks almost identical. So this really was an interesting way of reconceptualizing addiction, that addiction as a disorder looks almost identical to other medical disorders in terms of its heritability, in terms of how much people comply with the treatments that we give them, and also based on the treatment response. So when he looked at this, he said, "Okay, so we know that um, that the genetic contributions to addictions are pretty similar in terms of there being kind of a a uh, you know a, a roughly a fifty percent contribution genetically to the susceptibility to developing an addiction." That's relatively similar to what we would see in asthma, hypertension, and, uh, uh, and diabetes. What the why this was so ground changing, you know, why this was so um, earth shaking in a way was because historically, addictions has been kind of treated as this sort of oh, this is sort of a, a moral. Uh, disorder. This is sort of a willpower issue. This isn't a medical issue. This is, a, this is something different. So substance use disorders for a long time were relegated to this kind of second-class citizen uh, status. So treatment for substance use disorders was out of the medical system. You, know, you wanted treatment for addictions, you went somewhere else. You didn't go to the hospital. You didn't go to your primary care doctor. You didn't even talk about it with them because it was something different. Um, this started the ball rolling for reconceptualizing the idea of addiction as actually a chronic relapsing medical illness. So it was really important. Another thing that was pretty evident relation to uh, like diabetes, for example, is that there was no, we don't have a permanent cure for diabetes. We also don't have a permanent cure for addiction. Um, And that you could manage it like you would any other chronic illness with a combination of medications, behavior changes, and long-term follow-up. Just, you, just like diabetes. Okay. So I told you I was going to come back to this. Why do we care? Okay. Now, here's, 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 where, here's where I get all fancy. And I've got a video here. Some people would probably be able to do this much more, uh, with much more facility than I'm able to do. Um, but let's give this a try. Too bad the doctors prescribing painkillers, they run out, and it turns out it's cheaper to get heroin on the street than it is to try to figure out how to refill that prescription. You got a problem. And, and that's why for all the good work that Congress is doing, it's not enough just to uh, provide the architecture and the structure for more treatment. There has to be actual funding for the treatment, and we have proposed in our budget an additional billion dollars for drug treatment programs in counties all across the country. And my hope is is that uh, all the advocates and folks and families who are here and those who are listening uh, say to Congress, this is a priority. We have got to make sure that uh, uh, in- incredibly talented young people like Crystal are in a position where they can get the treatment when they need it to put this in some context the idea that a sitting president would be talking about a billion dollars in money to treatment of addictions is unprecedented and this this is from I, I didn't write down the date, but I mean this is within the last six months you know, this is huge uh, for the field of addictions, it has now become much more of a mainstream and a political issue than it had been ever in, in our history. The, the, to put it in comparison, back in the 1980s, have you guys heard about the, the war on drugs? Okay, there's been a lot of talk about comparing what's happening now and the approach to addictions now relative to what we did in the 1980s with the, the so-called war on drugs. So when we talk about the war on drugs, we're talking about The strategy for combating addictions is going to be to go after supply, not necessarily going after demand. What is happening now is that the shift is going towards going after demand away from the idea of going after supply. Now, I know that a lot of people have maligned the the thinking about the war on drugs back in the 80s, but we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of looking back and seeing that, hey, the war on drugs really didn't work. Um, it really didn't solve the problem. But, you know, we had to try it in order to know that it wasn't going to work. Now we know that it didn't work. Um, so the idea that we're focusing now on treatment and we're putting a billion dollars into opioids only, you know, alone is a huge step forward for the field. So this is a really kind of exciting time to be thinking about addictions. Um, just so you know, the actu- is anyone in the audience an actuary? No? Okay, I've always wanted to meet an actuary. Yes. <laughs> I just want to know what they, I mean, do they just think in numbers? But the the actuaries kind of look at, at things and from a numeric standpoint are able to kind of uh, do assessments of things that blow my mind. One of them is sort of thinking about like, well, for every dollar that's invested in X you know, approach, what is the cost to society or what is the payback to society? So one of the things they looked at was this war on drugs and what they found was that for every dollar that we spent on the war on drugs, we lost eighty five cents of it okay so financially, the war on drugs did not lead to society you know gaining in terms of or it didn't turn into a great investment if you lost eighty five eighty five cents of every dollar that you invested in apple, you probably wouldn't be keeping that stock right or i mean of course apple's gone the other way but the then we think about what about uh when those same actuaries then look at other treatments, like, for example, methadone maintenance programs, what is, the, what is the payback? So for every dollar that's invested in a methadone maintenance program, we save 12 as a society. So the idea that we're shifting away from this idea of going after supply and instead going after sort of the demand, so to speak, or the treatment end of the, the, the puzzle is you, know, is, you know, the data would support that approach as being cost-effective we think about like, well, how do you screen for this? What do I think about when I'm screening somebody or when I'm talking to other doctors who are not addiction experts? And they're like, well, I don't know. I mean, you got all these just surveys and things, questionnaires that you can ask people. People have boiled this down to basically one question. Um, If someone's, so you ask a, a man about alcohol, you say, how many times in the past year have you had five or more drinks on one occasion? If they say yes to that, you ask them the rest of the questions about substance use disorder. If they say no to that, then you don't have to go any further. So one question opens up the door in terms of what you need to do further. One question, a yes on one, one question will lead you into thinking about this person most likely has some degree of a substance use disorder or an addiction. Okay, so one simple question. How many times in the past year have you had four or more drinks on one occasion? When You, you know, asking a woman. How many times in the past year have you used an illegal drug or used a prescription medication for non-medical reasons? Yes? No. Has it happened? You know, it says how many times. If it's happened, there's probably a substance use disorder there. Now, we talk about thinking about that. Now, once you've screened somebody and you've determined that they have, let's say, a moderate opioid use disorder, we talk about evidence-based treatment. Have you guys heard this concept bantered about in different? Does anybody have any idea what that means? (laughs) So I talk about the, the proverbial three-legged stool. This is my most advanced slide. <laughs> I'm just going to marvel at it for a second. So there is the, the three-legged stool. Okay. When we talk about evidence-based treatment, we are talking about three different things and In the integration of three different things. We're talking about what does the best available research evidence tell us about treatment of a certain disorder? We combine that with, okay, what are the patient preferences or their values? And then finally, you, com- you think about well, what does my clinical expertise tell me? In other words, what does my experience tell me about patients who have been in the situation similarly in the past? And you have to integrate those three things. So the importance of this is that you'll hear people talking about evidence-based treatment, evidence-based treatment. The key to this is thinking about, well, what's the best you know, we have lots of studies, big studies, that look at uh, Uh, You know, that look at various things like, well, this particular medication for alcohol use disorder. We have this massive study, tens of thousands of people enrolled in this study. The thing is that the real world is not necessarily going to fit exactly what was in that study. They've excluded certain things. They've streamlined it so there aren't as many variables. The real world is messy. So in the real world, you have to take what's in a study and you have to combine it with what you know and what you've seen before. And then you have to combine it with what the patient actually wants or is interested in doing. So, you know, we could think about like, well, that's simple enough. Like, okay, I just say, I've got John here. He's got an alcohol use disorder. What's the treatment for John? Let's plug it into Google. Turns out it's not very helpful. So that's what I mean by you've gotta be able to integrate. Um, the Google itself has not gotten to the point, it's not gotten smart enough, It probably will someday. Who knows? But it hasn't gotten smart enough to be able to integrate all these things to come up with an individualized, tailored approach to a particular patient. So I told you before I was going to talk a little bit about different psychotherapy or what we call behavioral approaches to addictions because... in general, one of my conclusions—I'm going to spill. You know, I'm going to show my show my hand right now and tell you that at the end, I'm going to tell you that one of the things I think about when treating addictions is thinking about the combination of different kinds of treatments, different modalities of treatment, um, all with the same goal of kind of reducing a person, you know, a person substance use disorder or mitigating the effects of it. So we talk about psychotherapies. I'm big on putting things in in buckets um, you know, conceptual buckets. I've got four conceptual buckets. I'm going to tell you about first one is enhancing motivation to change behavior. Okay. So what I've got here is the proverbial seesaw of, you know, when we're talking about motivation to change or motivation to, uh, you know, think about change. So on one hand, I want to change X behavior, X, On one hand, I want to change my alcohol use. On the other hand, I don't want to change my alcohol use. On one hand, I want to go to the gym. On the other hand, I don't really want to go to the gym. What this is called is ambivalence. So ambivalence means to be of two minds about something. Ambivalence, guess what? Ambivalence is normal. Everyone is ambivalent. It just so happens that someone with a substance use disorder is ambivalent about their substance okay? I was in, amb- I used that gym one because it was relevant. I could have gone to the gym this morning. I didn't, but I was ambivalent about it. On one hand, I knew that I wanted to go to the gym, but on the other hand, I knew that I didn't want to go to the gym. They didn't want to go to the gym piece one out. This is what's going on in the brain of someone with a substance use disorder is that part of them really does not want to use, but part of them really does. So the job of enhancing motivation is exploring it with the person to determine Is there a way that I can tip the scales more towards I want to change X? So there's a whole system of therapy, a whole system of engagement called motivational interviewing. Has anybody heard of that before? Okay, a couple of hands are gone. So there's a whole idea of motivational interviewing. And what motivational interviewing essentially is, is capitalizing on this idea that people are naturally ambivalent about their substance use, and that the way that you, are, are there ways that you can engage with the person to tip the balance? So I've put another seesaw up here to kind of determine that when the developer of motivational interviewing, Bill Miller, went in and he looked at, well, what do we know about behavior change in people? Certain truisms kind of came out in the literature. One is that people are more likely to change if they decide to change, I'll let that sink in for a minute. You are more likely to change if you decide to change. That's one of my duh moments, okay? But still, important to set the groundwork that, like, okay, if you decide to change, you're more likely to change. Now, we know that people are more likely to decide to change if they talk more about change. And we know that, uh, that you can get someone to talk more about change by the way you engage them in the interview, or in the in in that process, we also know that if you just tell people stop it, they don't generally change. Okay, how many times you know people have children in here like stop it, stop it, stop it. it oh, Mike, maybe I'm showing my hand with my own kids here, but the, um, so certain things kind of have come out in the literature that demonstrate that like, look, people are more likely you can affect someone's you know, thinking about changing by how you engage with them. There's a huge evidence, I talked about the evidence, evidence-based treatment, there's a huge evidence base to suggest that motivational interviewing can be effective. And that it doesn't take 10 years of, you know, lying on the couch and talking about mom and dad to get to it. A 15-minute, a 10-minute intervention, I'll talk about that term in a minute, but a 10 or 15-minute engagement with someone can be effective in altering someone's thinking about change if you do it properly. So I put that up there. I might go into great depth about it. But the, uh, the other, kind of moving through the different buckets, another bucket is thinking about improving someone's skills in managing their illness. So this is predicated on the idea that substance use is a learning process, um, that you learn to use and that you learn certain things that lead you to use. And that as such, you can unlearn this. So broadly speaking, we've got a lot of different what we call cognitive interventions or cognitive behavioral interventions, which are predicated on the idea that, that you want to be able to teach someone skills to better recognize their triggers that you want to teach them skills to of, of how to avoid high-risk situations, and you want to teach them skills for how to cope with cravings that they may have. So the way that we do this is we think about, okay, well, what kind of skills? We want to actually actively teach you how to refuse. Let's role play in the office. You know, Bob comes up to you and says, hey, let's go smoke a joint. How are you going to say, I'm going to play the role of Bob, you're going to play the role of you. How are you going to say no to Bob? Let's practice this. In other words, let's learn how to say no to that particular situation. Let's learn how to put some time between you and the decision. So Bob comes up to you and says, hey, let's go go to the bar. How are you going to delay giving Bob an answer? Because if you delay, if you put some time between you and the decision, you're you're more likely to be able to opt for the option that's more consistent with your goal of not using. Um How do you recognize, tolerate, and counteract painful feelings? Let's talk through what you're craving, what you experience with your cravings. Let's recognize when those are happening, and let's recognize that when they're happening, you may need to talk it through with somebody. Um, and then how can we better foster healthy sources of reinforcement? In other words, let's try to tip the balance so that there are things that you are more interested in doing and engaging in than taking that drink. Again, this is manualized. This is very structured. Um, what you're really doing is you're teaching skills in the moment. Again, this is not lie on the couch, tell me about when you were potty trained, like all that stuff. This is specific skills. So the way this may look is that it may, it's typically done in sort of an 8 to 12-week manualized structured session, and it uses role play, homework practice, functional analysis, and it has this phenomenon that we call sleeper effect. By this, we mean that someone who has gone through 8 to 12 weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy may show down the road that they actually have internalized something and that they actually are better off than people who didn't get the 8 to 12 weeks. So when they've compared people subsequent to getting you know, people who got 8 to 12 weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy, they look at them a year out relative to a cohort of people who didn't get cognitive behavioral uh, therapy a year out? How are those two different groups doing? The group that got the cognitive behavioral therapy did better than the group that didn't. Now, I put the the wonderful uh, image up here of the piano because I tell people that this is like learning a musical instrument. This is like learning a new language. It's going to take practice, and it's going to take time. And that's why there's homework, there's practice in the session, there's role play, Um, there's this idea of the functional analysis. When we talk about that, what we're talking about is basically somebody relapsed in the week between the appointments. Let's talk about that relapse People can have a tendency to kind of minimize what happened. Let's talk about it in vivid detail. Okay, what happened here? What happened there? What things, you know... Oh, okay, so early in the morning, you had that conversation with your mom. And then ever since then, you were feeling a little bit unsteady through the day. So maybe the relapse actually started... Not when you picked up the drink at the bar, but when you had that conversation with mom in the morning. The place to intervene, the place to recognize that you're vulnerable is when you have that inter- bad interaction with mom or you have that kind of bad interaction with someone. So then you can kind of hone in on, okay, it's not, it's not just when you sat down at the bar. When you sat down at the bar, you know the cow was already out of the barn, so to speak. Let's, let's figure out what we can do to prevent the barn door from opening in the first place. Okay, moving along. We'll talk about this idea of realigning priorities. This is this is uh, akin to the, the sort of learning model that I talked about previously with the cognitive behavioral therapy. The the exemplar of this is this idea of contingency management. So this is a really interesting paradigm. It basically what is it? It's saying is that you are using well defined incentives or sanctions that you're implementing. Um, relative to an accessible target behavior. So this particular technique is used a lot in the criminal justice system. So folks ever heard of a, a drug court or diversion program? What these, are, some nods, what this is referring to is that someone, for example, may get uh, picked up for a drug charge, a possession charge, let's say. They go before the judge and the judge says, okay, you got two options. You can go into jail or you can face full charges for this or I'll give you an opportunity to engage in what's called a diversion program. In the diversion program, you're going to be there are certain things that you have to do. You have to show up for this many appointments, you have to check in with this person, you have to engage in all of these things. If you do that, then I will I will lower your charges or wipe them out altogether. So the op, here's your option. You can do either of these two things. So in the diversion programs, they use a lot of this, which is that let's say that you have a target behavior. So like a negative drug screen. So that's what you're trying to get to. So if you have that target behavior, so target behavior, yes, you'll get praised for it. You'll get gift certificates, verbal praise. You may be able to draw from a a pot to kind of with variable amounts of reward, like a you know a, a free ice cream cone or something like that. Um, that's so if you if you adhere to if you get the target behavior being the negative drug screen, you have the uh, negative drug screen. You get positive things. You get incentives. You don't that drug screen turns up uh, you know turns up positive. You get sanctioned. So you get additional electronic monitoring. You get some writing assignments. You get community service. So, again, you're trying to tip the balance towards the target behavior by using incentives or sanctions. Now, we know this works, and a lot of studies have demonstrated the, the, that this, this approach works. Now, there are certain key components to this that have to be in place, so one is that the target behavior and incentives and sanctions, they have to be concrete and clear. This has to be, there has to be no question, there has to be no gray area about what we're talking about for a target behavior and when you're falling short of it and when you're meeting it. That has to be crystal clear. We also know that the reinforcement, the sanction or the incentive, has to happen relatively close to the time that the event took place. Now, the, the example I love to talk about is that I'm at home, my son, let's say, bites my daughter, and I'm watching the game, and I'm like, you know what, that's bad, but I want to finish watching the game. We're going to talk about this in an hour, okay? Any of you have kids? How, how well does that work? <laughs> okay, it doesn't work. Um, the The idea being that that you have to per, like you you have to tie the incentive or the sanction. In close time proximity to when it happens, so when the when the when the urine drug screen turns up positive, sanction right away. Okay, you can't wait two weeks in order to do it. Um, we also know that if the reward increases in time, people are more likely to continue to stick with the incentive or and stick with the tar- and adhere to the target behavior. We know that it, it relative to other uh, inter- you know other uh, interventions, it, it's strong and a consistent efficacy. Now, remember I told you about that sleeper effect with cognitive behavioral therapy? This is different. What we see is that when people exit the program, the effects don't tend to last like they did with the cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. The final one here is I've, I've named It Takes a Village. I don't know if this is harkening back to sort of Hillary Clinton in the 90s, but it's a, it's a great concept for this because what it's acknowledging essentially is that that the person it doesn't exist in a vacuum and that there are things in the environment around the person with an addiction that you can modulate to tip things towards uh, you know reducing their substance use now. There are lots of different things that you could think about this. I kind of conceptually put these together. So group therapies, the involve, formal family involvement, the concept of a therapeutic community, and 12-step programs. I'm going to take a look at these kind of uh, you know, briefly, sequentially, but I wanted to kind of give a nod to 12-step programs I'll spend a little bit more time on because they're so ubiquitous. Okay, group therapies, and when I say groups, I'm not talking about 12-step, AA, NA, that kind of stuff. I'm talking about uh, you know there can be different just groups uh, a psychotherapy group, a psychoeducation group, um, a support group, um, a group where skills are taught, different kinds of group and generally speaking people when groups are incorporated into a treatment program, people do better um, there can be they can be led by peers they can be led by clinicians it doesn't really matter just the fact that you have a group enhances the treatment um, outcomes for folks. So we've got family involvement. So there, there are there are structured programs that we can, structured manualized treatments that we can use to educate families, for example, about how to handle and how to modulate the environment. If someone's coming to see you in the office, someone you know, is, is coming in and I get them for an hour a week or I get them for a half hour a week, whatever it might be, there's a lot of other hours during the week where I'm not there and they're around their family, so if you can kind of help educate the family about how they might engage with the person to continue what you're doing in the sessions to tip the balances towards uh you know tip the balances towards uh uh you know uh, improvement in their substance use disorder, all the better um, I put these up there just as kind of examples. there's this uh, concept of the network therapy um, which combines. CBT with, uh, education and corporation, you know, with the family, you bring them in, you have uh, family sessions. This isn't what we call an intervention, you know, like the TV show intervention. I don't know if has anybody seen that TV show. So the actual data on these interventions where the person is brought in, the whole family's there, there's a TV crew and they say, look, either you do this or we're gone. Okay. Those the data does not suggest that those approaches have long-term benefit, that people actually do much better with in big interventions. So this, I, I want to make that distinction. That what I'm talking about here is not an intervention. Um, and then there's other forms of this where you're teaching families how to use positive and negative reinforcement in real time. So, uh, you know, you, you have a negative drug screen or you don't go out to the bar, I'll cook your favorite spaghetti you know, like that kind of thing, like little things in the environment that you can modulate uh, in order to kind of tip the balances. Um, There's this concept of a therapeutic community where basically uh, these have been around for a long time. There can be 30 to hundreds of clients who are all living together. This can last up to a year or more. Um, And the whole idea of the therapeutic community is that the community itself is the treatment. That within the community, your peers are there, and you've got people who will help with vocational counseling. They'll help with work therapy, educational, medical, social, family, legal services. All of this is contained within the therapeutic community to enhance a person making global change in their lifestyle. Um, Again, the, the concept here is community as method. Now, 12-step programs. So when I talk about this, I'm talking about Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous. There are all kinds of different 12-step programs. Um, they all look very different. And there's been a lot of press about, uh, about 12-step programs that's important to kind of acknowledge uh, when talking about this. So because AA, for example, has been such a mainstay of... Of addictions treatment for you know for eighty years that that you know you it's kind of taken as being the be all and end all in some circles, and while the uh, there's some kind there was a big Atlantic article about this maybe a couple of years ago where the big critique of twelve step programs was that where's the evidence base you know where are the big randomized controlled trials that have said that. AA relative to no AA, and you know what's the outcome difference between these, and AA, you know AA in particular was really taken to task by, for example, this this Atlantic article. Now, what's not acknowledged as well in that in that critique of AA is that you know A is actually very difficult to study. It's very heterogeneous. Um, they don't collect data. There's you know, it's anonymous, so you can't have people in the room studying what's going on in the room. So any conclusions we draw about AA or 12 step programming is all sort of done post facto, sort of like uh, yesterday was election day, right? So, you know, people doing exit polling, right? The, the pollster is not in there watching you do it and asking you about your thinking when you're doing it. They're asking you about it after the fact. So we can only get indirect data when we're talking about AA. The other thing to remember about a 12-step programming is that it is, um, it's not necessarily what we would consider a treatment program. It's been conflated in many people's minds to be considered a treatment program, but it's not. It's a, it's a fellowship. This is a group of people who are getting together with a common goal, and in doing so, they're trying to help one another get to that common goal. So for that reason, the groups can be very different. You can have, you know, gay, lesbian, women's, men's, young people, uh, different racial, ethnic groups, uh, different religious, uh, you know, groups that, that there may be a, a flavor to different groups that, that can be variable from place to place and group to group. Um, so it makes it very difficult. Sometimes when I'm referring patients to an AA group, I'll say, well, let's pull out the book. Let's find out where the meetings are and let's give it a try. They go, to the, they, they go and they come back and they say, ah, I didn't like that, you know it was just a bunch of you know uh you know it was just a bunch of like 70 year old white guys uh sitting around i had no it re- just really wasn't relevant to me my patient maybe a you know let's say like a 22 year old woman and she's like oh, this this just really didn't work for me i say that that's fine that's not what all aa groups are like let's try a different one let's see if we can find one that's more tailored to your your you know what you feel comfortable around um so The, but we do know certain trends for AA in particular. AA is more studied because it's, there's just, it's been around longer. It was the first one. It's been around longer, um, relative to like Narcotics Anonymous and whatnot. We do know that people who are more severe in their drinking problem tend to do better with AA. People who have a greater commitment to change tend to do better in AA. People who have less spousal support tend to do better in AA. People whose social network is more supportive of their drinking, tend to do better in AA. You can almost imagine, and this is sort of the the AA as this fellowship, if their social network is all pro-drinking and you give them an alternative social network that's anti-drinking, they tend to do better. have also kind of uh, you know, lumped into this is the idea that they, if there's a greater desire to find meaning in one's life, they're more likely to affiliate with an AA program. And when we say affiliate, there are different degrees to which someone in AA may uh, uh, you know, may engage in the AA. There are those people who go to an AA meeting and sit in the back and never say a word um, maybe go once or twice a year, that kind of thing. That's sort of a poor, we would say that's kind of a poor affiliation. Then there are the people who go every day, they speak, they make coffee, they do these different, you know, activities within AA, and those folks tend to do better. So if you can enhance affiliation, you tend to do better. Um, and then, you know, how to assess if it works. I mean, I put this up here, you know, 30 million Elvis fans can't be wrong. I, I don't remember even if the phrase was 30 million. I just made up the, the number. But the, the idea being that, that there are a lot of people for whom AA is very effective. Um, and you can't argue with results for, you know, for a lot of people. Now, does that mean that AA is for everybody? No. That's why I introduced the idea that there are other treatment approaches. But when you're dealing with a, a disease that is that, that will kill people, I tend to think, let's try as much as we can in the hopes that we will settle out in that process with some, with some treatment strategy, some combination of CBT, with a medication, with, um, with AA. If that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. So... Um, lastly, here, kind of thinking about medication-assisted treatment. Um, we, this is the buzzword that we, talk, or buzz concept, medication-assisted treatment. In other words, what what medications can we use to enhance the effectiveness of treatment for, you know, for addiction? Now, I, I put this up here uh, to kind of convey that. That uh, when we talk about medication assisted treatment, we're, we're really focusing on this idea of medications for substance use disorders. But I like to lump in the idea that if you also have bipolar disorder, for example, uh, and, you, and, and you're better stabilized on medications for your bipolar disorder, that has to be part of the treatment planning for your addiction as well. Um, and if you've got HIV, for example, and, and being on medications is indicated for your HIV. I want to incorporate that in my thinking more broadly about medications and your treatment. Um, when we talk about medication-assisted treatment specifically for substance use disorders, we talk about, again, I, I love putting things in buckets conceptually. It helps me. Um, <laughs> and it helps me talk about it. We have different conceptual ideas of how to treat a substance use disorder with, med- with medications. So at the top we've got this idea of agonist or replacement therapy. So the best way to think about this, and I'm going to go through these individually, is that you're replacing their a, a person's heroin, you know, uh, you're replacing their heroin use with another opioid that's taken in a more safe manner. Um, to prevent them from having you know, continual exposure to uh, the opioid heroin that may lead to uh, you know, HIV, hepatitis, or overdose and death, and replace that with something else. Um, we talk about blockade, so let's block off the receptors in the brain that could get activated by heroin. Let's block it completely so that if you use heroin on top of something, it ain't going to work for you. You ain't going to feel high. It's not going to get its way through. Let's re- modulate the receptors in such a way to tip the balance towards not using. And then there's finally this idea of let's, let's, let's give you a medication that makes it so damn scary to use that you're not going to use. So when we talk about these individually. So we talk about replacement therapy, for. Oh, we, I'm talking about only FDA approved indications for medications here. We've got methadone and we've got buprenorphine for opioid use disorders. Both methadone and buprenorphine are opioids. But methadone is delivered out of a methadone clinic. Somebody goes to a methadone clinic and says, I want to get off heroin or whatever opioid I'm using, and I want to be on methadone. The way that a methadone clinic works is that, at least initially, you go every day and you get your dosing every day. You go to a window, they give you your medication, you take it, you go on with your day. The methadone will prevent you from having withdrawal for the next 24 hours until you come back for your next day's dosing. Methadone clinics have been around for a long time. They're primarily located in urban centers. Um, and uh, what happened, though, initially, we had a lot of folks that—that's where primarily heroin use was, was in the and opioid use disorders were located. You had the main population was in a major urban setting, so that's where the clinics were. The demographic started to shift about twenty, you know. 15, 20 years ago with the rise in prescription opioids. And what we found was that you had a lot of people who were in the suburbs, for example, who were now getting hooked on prescription opioids. Prescription opioids start to get really expensive. This is what President Obama was talking about in his clip there, or what he was alluding to. Prescription opioids start to get very expensive. So somebody will shift to heroin. So now you've got heroin in the suburbs, but the methadone clinics are downtown, how can we bridge that gap? Buprenorphine was in, introduced as an option or an alternative to methadone because you don't have to go to a clinic for it. You can get a prescription for it, and you take it yourself every day. Um, the other sort of replacement therapy that we have is you know, nicotine replacement therapy. So someone who smokes, let's replace the nicotine. Let's give you a patch. Let's give you a gum. Let's give you a lozenge. You're essentially trying to replace the nicotine that they were getting via Smoking. So, I talked a little bit about the difference between, uh, you know, buprenorphine and methadone. One of the things, one of the fascinating things about psychopharmacology is that that you talk. As people heard, of, so buprenorphine is the opioid. The brand name for a long time for the combination of buprenorphine and naloxone, which is a blocker, which we'll talk about in a second, is Suboxone. Have people heard about Suboxone? Is something that you may have heard in the news. So this is ingenious. What the, FD, what the FDA and the DEA said was, "Okay, we we will support the idea of an office-based treatment, or you know, a non-methadone clinic treatment for opioid use disorder." But we want to ensure that there's there's a deterrent to misusing that buprenorphine. So they went to. The man, you know, to different manufacturers, and one of them came up with this idea of, well, let's combine the buprenorphine with naloxone. The interesting thing is that naloxone is not absorbed sublingually, but the buprenorphine is. So if you take the buprenorphine with the naloxone sublingually, like you're supposed to, the naloxone just goes right through your system and you poop it out. Doesn't cause you any problems. However, if you get the urge to break that, suboxone down and inject it, that naloxone now is active, and that naloxone will block the basically block opioids from using, or if opioids are on board, it'll take them off the receptors and you'll go into withdrawal. So it's a deterrent for misusing the buprenorphine. Um, then we talk about blockade. So I mentioned n- naloxone. Naloxone and naltrexone are both blockers of opioid receptors. So you can give someone Naltrexone. So pilots, for example, may not be allowed to be on methadone or buprenorphine, but they may be in a monitored program where, they're getting, where they have to be observed taking naltrexone, either a long-term injectable or orally every day. Because they know that if you, if you have naltrexone on board and you use heroin or you use some other opioid, it's not going to get through the blockade provided by the naltrexone or the naloxone. And then we've got overdose prevention. You may have heard this in the news as well. We call these the intranasal Narcan rescue kits. So the other way that 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 naloxone is available is through intranasal. So we've been it's now gotten FDA approval about 2-3 months ago. And basically what this is is that we now distribute this to families of people who are known users of opioids. Or we distribute it to friends of people or we make it available widely in the community where people maybe go to needle exchanges. Wherever, the, wherever people are using, we try to get these Narcan rescue kits out so that if someone overdoses you know, right next to you, if you and, you and Bob are using together and you notice that Bob just, well, Bob just took too much and Bob's not breathing too well, you can give them some Narcan, call 911, and you may save their life. Um, then we talk about receptor modulation. This is, again, kind of tipping the balance towards not using by capitalizing on the, the receptor systems that a particular substance of abuse may uh, may activate. So we talk about bupropion, which is Welbutrin. Um, Zyban is the trade name for this when, using, when used for smoking cessation. Um, and Varenicline or Chantix. Chantix has a lot of commercials. I see them all the time on, on TV. Um, basically, Chantix kind of is a nicotine receptor modulator. Wellbutrin is kind of indirectly working within the dopamine system. Again, they did studies of this to show that people who take you know, Wellbutrin or they take uh, Chantix or Varenicline um, are less likely or are better in their efforts to uh, cease smoking, for example. Um, Alcohol use disorders, this is a a fascinating example. I'm going to talk a little bit about the naltrexone. If you remember, I talked about naltrexone as an opioid blocker. And you may say, well, wait a minute. Alcohol isn't an opioid. Why would an opioid blocker help you if you're drinking? That's a great question. I I presume that was your your question, so I just kind of put it out there. But the, the... the, the basic premise here is that when you drink alcohol, I told you remember that 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 uh, there are certain downstream effects of all substances of abuse that make them reinforcing or rewarding. What we found though is that when you drink, that part of the reinforcing effect from the alcohol is indirectly related to the fact that you drink alcohol and you release small amounts of your endogenous or internal natural opioids in your brain. So your endorphins, you may have heard those. So what they found was that if you give people an opioid blocker to block those endogenous opioids, when you drink, you get less reinforcement from the drinking and people do better. In particular, people who binge drink do a lot better with naltrexone. People who use a heck of a lot of alcohol do a lot better because it prevents that reinforcement effect. So if you relapse on the alcohol, you don't tend to relapse on as much because there's not as much reinforcement there because you've blocked the the endogenous surge that happens when you drink alcohol. Again, ingenious stuff. And then there's the deterrent, the fear one. This is the, I'm going to make you so damn scared that you're not going to use this. So basically the only one we have is disulfiram which also goes by the name antabuse ba- the basic premise here is that if you take antabuse that's the big key to this if you take antabuse and you drink antibuse will prevent i know i'm not supposed to move outside the light but i'm going to do it anyway if you take antibuse, you will block you will block the metabolism of acetaldehyde to acetate Now, your body really wants to get rid of acetaldehyde because it makes you really sick. If you block acetaldehyde from being taken out of your system and it builds up, you get really sick. So the issue, of course, is, though, that you have to take the antabuse in order for this to work this way. And when you get sick on this stuff, I'm not saying you feel a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, you are really sick. So again, the way that this works is by fear. You introduce the idea that if I do this, I'm going to get really sick. So that would dissuade somebody from from using. So addiction is the same or is synonymous with substance use disorder. It's marked by behaviors around a substance of use. Substances co-opt endogenous or internal reward pathways in the brain In particular, those that utilize the neurotransmitter dopamine. And we can think of dopamine as kind of being the final common pathway for reinforcement of substance use. We know that addictions and substance use disorders are really prevalent. In other words, that that there's a lot of it out there, a lot of people suffer from these disorders. And that we know that there are environmental, genetic, and economic factors that can predispose one to developing an addiction. And it can be conceptualized as a chronic relapsing illness similar to diabetes, hypertension, asthma. We know that screening for an addiction can actually be relatively simple. It can be as simple as a single question, as a starting point for kind of opening the door to being able to figure out who's at risk and who's not. The concept of evidence-based treatment, again, that wonderful slide of the three-legged stool, You know, there's a concept that there's evidence-based treatment for addiction, and that you need to be able to interpret what the research studies tell you in combination with what your clinical experience is and what what the values and or preferences of the patient in front of you might be. Psychotherapies uh, for addictions exist, are well-documented, are well-researched, and uh, are very effective, especially when combined with other treatment interventions, such as medications. I kind of put these into different conceptual buckets for you to think about in terms of, on one hand, we're thinking about how do you motivate someone or how do you enhance their endogenous motivation, so to speak. On the other hand, you think about, well, how can I give them more skills? How can they develop a repertoire of skills that will help them maintain and achieve their goal? How can I help them, how can I modulate their priorities in such a way to tip the balance towards not using? And you know, how can I enlist the bigger environment that a patient exists in towards helping them to uh, remain, you know, remain sober or decrease their use, or more broadly speaking, how can I help them modulate the environment such that they can achieve their goal? Um, we think about medications to assist in this process. I often tell people, I mean, broadly speaking, with any psychiatric disorder, I tell people, look, I, I don't have a magic pill that makes this all go away. I don't have a happy pill that makes you feel better completely. I don't have a pill that 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 will fix all of the relationships in your life. I don't have a pill that pays your PG&E bill. Um, but I do have pills that, that can help put you in a better place to be able to deal with the PG&E bill. But I don't want you to get the expectation that I can solve this by giving you a pill alone. I want to combine this with some other things. So if your expectation is that I have a pill that's going to make everything better, I don't. But I can work around these other things potentially in conjunction with that to help you get to your goal. Um, As as I said here, often combining treatments as part of an evidence-based treatment can be important. Now, I threw this last slide in here, and it's my, and it's another video, and it's a very short one. So I got to kind of, I got to time this just right. But the one of the things that I often hear about from my colleagues or other people who, uh, you know, who 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 have dealt with patients with addictive disorders or think about addictions, they say, "Wow, it's it's all lies. All, it's all everybody's lying." and And, you know, I I don't want to treat them because they they just lie. So, you know, a word about lies here. You sit on a throne of lies. Maybe that that was a little bit too much buildup for not enough. uh. (laughs) So I tell people uh, that, you know, it's not about the lies. Um, People get really caught up in the idea that I'm being lied to and that it they, and that it's personal that this is you know that that uh, that that they're that that someone's lying to me and that as a result of that I need to you know defend myself against the lies now when I'm working with medical students when I'm working with residents I try to refocus their attention away from the lies or the idea that the lies are kind of a personal affront to them what's happening is that that these, when someone has a, a an addiction, their priorities, their worldview is so constricted on that substance or that addiction that it becomes almost impossible for them to not do everything they can to sustain that pattern of behavior and sustain that, that use. So I often tell people, I'm like, well, why? What you, the more important thing to think about is exploring with someone why it is that they feel the need to lie about that. So, for example, someone comes into my office, and their urine toxicology comes back positive, and I know that they relapsed, and they told me that they didn't. I don't go in and say, aha, I gotcha. Aha, you were lying to me. Because that doesn't work. That doesn't help. What I try to then explore to them is like, well, why was it difficult for you to be able to tell me that you had relapsed? Because I guarantee you that 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 difficulty that you were having in in talking with me about your relapse is what's happening with everybody around you and that you're doing the same thing to everybody else around you and that that's perpetuating the problem to some some extent. So let's explore why it was that it was difficult for you to talk with me about having relapsed rather than being punitive and focusing on the idea that you lied to me and as a result, I'm mad at you now because that doesn't work as well. So anyway... um, I've employed my effective strategy of talking almost to the end of my hour and a half, meaning that there's very little time for questions and answers. But uh, uh, I, I was told that we are supposed to end at 8.30 because of the video issue, but I am also available, obviously, to talk with folks afterwards. But let me open it up now. Questions, comments, concerns? Yes. Absolutely. So uh I was instructed to also repeat the questions, um, so I will do so. So the, the uh first part of your question was uh that you had heard this notion that um uh that if you haven't developed an alcohol disorder by the time you're forty or fifty or pick a number, that you're that that you're not gonna develop the problem. Um and the second part of your question was what's actually happening sort of biologically in withdrawal? Um, let me take these, obviously I'll take this in two parts. So the first part, um, the flat out answer is no. Um, as a matter of fact, I'll take alcohol as an example. Uh, what we do know is that you're, going back to kind of this, this slide that showed the kind of pathway of metabolism of alcohol in the body, this gets altered in time as you get older. Your ability to process alcohol the efficiency with which you process alcohol decreases as you get older. Meaning that the 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 location you know the, the, the amount of time spent at the top of this process in terms of the alcohol actually in your system is higher as you get older. So someone who drinks a glass of port when they're twenty, that's not that glass of port when you're sixty or seventy is actually significantly more than it was when you were 20 in terms of how much alcohol is actually in your blood. So for people who may be vulnerable for um, you know, addiction or substance use disorder, uh, you may actually, as you get older, be at more risk. But we also talk about then, because the the consequences of your drinking may be more risky as you get older. So this, the, the, you know, the classic example, so the, the 80-year-old woman who has osteoporosis, um, who's drinking two glasses of port a night because she drank two glasses of port for the last 60 years, is at higher risk because of the fact that she may actually sustain a higher blood alcohol content and may, as a result, have more physiologic effects, more intoxication from the alcohol than she did when she was 20, may be at higher risk of falling so as you get older, your risk stratification changes with the substance, substance use. So alcohol in particular, the, the short answer is, are, you know, that, that does age protect you against development of addiction? No. Um, the second part of your question is, what's happening in, in, in withdrawal? So the essential principle in withdrawal, whether it's opioids or alcohol or whatever, is that through time when you introduce an exogenous, an outside substance that's co-opting your internal, your endogenous systems, your body will adjust to that and will make accommodations for the fact that you're getting alcohol every day, for example. So when you drink alcohol, it is hitting a lot of different... I talked about the dopamine pathway. It's hitting a lot of different pathways in your brain One of the reinforcing pathways, the final common pathways, is the dopamine pathway. But it also hits this brain receptor system and neurotransmitter system called GABA. Now, GABA is inhibitory. What that means is that GABA in your brain, naturally, is the thing that calms the brain down. You drink alcohol, calms the brain down. In time, if you drink a lot of alcohol every day, your body says, you know what? I don't need to make GABA anymore because I got this other thing that's giving me GABA all the time. I got this alcohol thing. What happens is you then remove the alcohol or you stop the alcohol. Your body can't adjust quickly enough to remake GABA because it for you know ten years it didn't need to make it. So it, it got kind of you know, for lack of a better way of describing it, it got kind of used to not having it or not needing to make it. Maybe it doesn't remember how to make it right away. The problem with that is that if you don't have any inhibition in the brain, if you don't have anything that's calming the brain down, and you leave the brain kind of exposed without any inhibitory GABA or alcohol, you then have have a situation where the excitatory piece of the puzzle can go rampant. And that's what happens with seizures and DTs is essentially that you are removing alcohol. Your body can't adjust to having that because it's adjusted to having the alcohol for so long. You remove it, and all of a sudden the brain just goes because it doesn't have anything to calm itself down anymore. It can't adjust to it quickly enough. So that's why we talk about detox. In detox, the concept is let's take you from your use up here and slowly bring you down so that you, we don't stop it cold turkey, so to speak, and then you have the consequences from there. Same principle with opioids. Your body gets used to having this thing coming in to your body, and it just turns off making it by itself. So that then you remove the thing that you're injecting, like let's say you're taking heroin, you remove the heroin, your body can't adjust to not having any of that anymore, and you get sick. So that's kind of physiologically what's happening in in withdrawal. Thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.